Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Vijay Prashad to talk about the crisis conflict in Ukraine. Please don't forget, there's a donate button, subscribe button, and all the buttons. Uh, most importantly, get to the website, get on our email list, and we'll be back in just a few seconds. So just before doing this interview, I was on the phone with my editor, who's of Romanian descent. And up until a day before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he would have more or less agreed with all the critique I usually make of U.S. imperialism, of NATO, uh, of, of quote-unquote the West, and so on. Uh, he would have agreed with almost all of that critique. Well, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, as I say, he's of Romanian descent, he is now quite angry at me for any critique of NATO. He's saying now's not the time to critique your NATO. It's now only time for solidarity with Ukraine and says if it wasn't for NATO, he thinks Russia would then march from Ukraine into Romania. Um, emotions are extremely inflamed uh, on, on many different sides on this issue. Uh, a, a quite profound split in the left, uh, in Ukraine, in Russia, and around the world uh, about you know, who's to blame and what's taking place. Um, in North America, the, the split in the left, which I'm more familiar with, uh, goes anywhere from uh, sections of the left who wholeheartedly support uh, NATO and the intervention, uh, arming of Ukraine, and, and would like to some even go further, uh, even might support a no-fly zone, which I think is insanity. Um, and, and the other side, uh, sections of people that say they're left, that poo-poo international law, uh, find ways to justify the Russian invasion, and, and at most call it a, a tactical error, which I, I find also kind of insane, as if Russia is some kind of socialist country that made a mistake. And, and, they, and they more or less place Russia as part of this socialist world, which they uh, include China, uh, Venezuela, and uh, Cuba, and some other countries. And, uh, but, but Russia, whatever you make of all those countries, Russia ain't socialist. Russia is anti-communist, anti-socialist. It's a government that represents the... Uh, uh, oligarchy. It's very uh, immersed in Russian nationalism. It's allied with uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, it's uh, Putin has been up until very recently, and maybe still, a hero of the Christian nationalists in the United States. Um, so I, I, I don't see how one doesn't critique both NATO, the West, and the Russian intervention, because it's all part of the decay and parasitism of global capitalism. Uh, but as I, uh, I was telling Vijay just a few seconds ago, I'm getting attacked from every side. I'm being accused of being pro-NATO, I'm being accused of being pro-Russia, and it seems to me when, when I get attacked from everywhere, uh, I'm, maybe I'm on the right track. At any rate, now, now joining me is uh, Vijay Prashad, 
who knows a lot more about these things than I do. Vijay is a, a historian, a journalist, a commentator. He's the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and the chief editor of Leftward, Leftward Books. His latest book is Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups and Assassinations. Thanks very much for joining me, Vijay. It's always a pleasure, Paul. Always a pleasure. So uh, we're going to do three parts here, roughly about half an hour each. Um, and I, 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 we're going to start with NATO and the West. Um, I know my editor, Romanian friend, will not like this. He'll think we should start with the Russian invasion. And frankly, we could. Uh, you know, the most immediate issue is the Russian inv invasion and the killing of civilians. And, and international law is not, and this is something you know more about, much more than I do, but international law is not there primarily to protect the sovereignty of governments. It's to protect the sovereignty of people, not to get attacked when, when, when the country invading isn't under imminent threat. Um, but let's do that more in part two when we're really going to kind of break down what, why and what Russia's doing. Part three will be about... Uh, the Ukrainian oligarchy and their responsibility in all of this, which is also great. But we're going to start start with NATO and the West. So, so what, what do you say to my Romanian friend uh, who's saying now's not the time to be critiquing NATO? Well, look, firstly, Paul, you're quite right. Um, this war, like all wars, is terrible. And wars um, often mostly end in negotiations. The only time a war does not end as such in negotiations is when there's been a total defeat of an adversary. In this case, it's, I think, a fantasy to imagine a total defeat of Russia. I thought U.S. President Joe Biden's statements about regime change in Russia were, you know, in a sense, um, juvenile on one side because they don't, uh, recognize or even uh, absorb the fact that till now credible polling houses in Russia say that Putin's approval rating is in the 60% range, maybe up to 70%. Um, regime change there is not actually advisable. It's juvenile for that reason, but it's also adventurous uh, to say that because it makes negotiation harder. Once you've said that we essentially want to get rid of you, then the appetite to negotiate is low. And you must negotiate because nobody can actually win a total victory here. You know, you're not going to get Berlin 1945, where Berlin is bombed to smithereens and Adolf Hitler commits suicide in the bunker and the Nazis disappear to South America and to form the West German intelligence services. Uh, that's not going to happen here. So you need to actually move rather quickly to to negotiation, ceasefire and negotiation. The talk of, you know, Putin must go follows Assad must go. And guess what? Mr. Assad just made a visit to the United Arab Emirates where he was greeted with open arms by the UAE, one of the places from which Mr. Biden wants to secure natural gas um, to substitute for Russian natural gas in Europe. It should be a good reminder that Mr. Assad is still in power in Syria. Mr. Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, remains in charge in Venezuela. So Maduro must go, Assad must go, now Putin must go. 
not a very good track record, not very smart politics. So I would first say that let's create the table for a ceasefire and for negotiations. So dial back the rhetoric, in which case it needs to be asked, why is the United States seeking not to dial back the tensions um, in Ukraine? And in order to understand why the United States is actually egging on this conflict, uh, why the United States is in fact poking at Mr. Putin personally and Russia in general, why are they doing this? Well, to understand that, simply standing in solidarity with Ukraine explains nothing. You need to understand the role of U.S. power, the role of U.S. power in Europe, and the instrument of U.S. power in Europe, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO. NATO must be part of the conversation. It's true, you can stand in solidarity without understanding things, but if the point of our conversation is to understand the conflict and where it could go, then NATO must be an important piece of that conversation. So my thinking is the underlying issue here is this thing that's often called the uneven development of capitalist countries. You also had uneven development of colonial powers. At one time, Portugal and Spain were the world powers. Uh, and, and in the lead up to World War II, it was clear Germany was going to become a major power of Europe, but had nowhere to go, had no colonies. And to a large extent, the West wanted to suppress that development of Germany until they wanted to turn Germany into a weapon against the Soviet Union. And that didn't quite work out the way they, they thought it would. Um, Russia clearly is a major, has the potential at least to be at least as important an economy as Germany. And if they weren't so wedded to being a fossil fuel military industrial complex country and diversified their economy, they probably would be. What is it, double the population of Germany? I mean, Russia, by all rights, should be a major power within Europe. And in fact, if the United States and the West hadn't tried to block that in the late 90s and early 2000s, maybe it could have been like a player within Europe and so on. But then Russia would have had to accept U.S. dominance and they weren't going to do that, and, and, and kind of the rest of history. Do you think that makes some sense? Well, firstly, we need to understand what happened to Russia when the Soviet Union was unmade. And it was unmade. I mean, um, living standards declined, life expectancy declined after the Soviet Union collapsed. But also, I mean, crucially, um, Thousands, tens of thousands of scientists, but thousands of high mathematicians left the uh, new Russian, first the community of independent states and then Russia. You know, Paul, if you walked into a major U.S. bank in the 1990s, Morgan Stanley or, or Goldman Sachs and so on, in the technical department, you would have met many Russian mathematicians. They had taken refuge in the West because living standards declined, universities weren't paying salaries. They're the ones who manufactured a lot of these derivatives and, you know, quartz and all these um, sophisticated instruments in high finance. Russia actually lost. There was an attrition of the uh, kind of intelligence built up during the Soviet Union. Many of the people in computer science left the country for Silicon Valley and so on. So they suffered not only um, the decline in living standards, but a, a, bra a brain drain, significant brain drain. 
and then as a consequence of the way in which Yeltsin, who was completely subordinate to the United States, Yeltsin governed the country from 91 to 99. Mr. Yeltsin allowed for the privatization of many of the natural resource uh, arenas, not only oil and natural gas, but rare earth metals and so on. The people who took control of this sector of the Russian economy suppressed the prices. And in, in a sense, globalization benefits because raw materials in the 1990s coming out of Russia were at a suppressed price. Whatever massive profits this section earned, they placed in Western banks. So in the 1990s, the West actually enormously benefited from the collapse of the USSR. You got the high-tech scientists coming to the West. You got raw materials cheapened uh, by the process of privatization inside the Soviet Union and then Russia. And then finally, the profits, the ill-gotten gains of these um, billionaires was placed in Western banks and crucially in Cyprus. Cyprus was the principal destination for this money exiting uh, Russia. So in that sense, you know, Russia was made into a natural resource uh, supplier for the world. Th this is not necessarily something that they planned to do or chose. Um, the process of the unmaking of the Soviet Union made Russia essentially into an exporter of natural gas, oil, and rare earth minerals and some other uh, important metals and minerals. And, okay, and, and, and arms. <laughs> And arms, sure, but arms actually deteriorated in the immediate period. It recovered in the late 1990s, so that's why India moved from importing from Russia to importing from Israel and became Israel's principal importer of arms because Russian arms industry also plummeted in the 90s. When Mr. Putin comes, Paul, he first comes in as Boris Yeltsin's prime minister initially and then becomes the heir apparent, the next president. And by the way, one of the first things Putin does is he gives immunity to Boris Yeltsin, immunity from prosecution. In the initial years of Mr. Putin's um, presidency and then prime ministership with Dmitry Medvedev, in the initial period, he was completely wedded to integrating Russia into Europe and the United States system, you know, um, up to about the world financial crisis. So from 1991 to 2007, you know, Moscow was perfectly willing to integrate with Europe and so on. Indeed, in 1994, Russia became a partner of NATO, you know, an official partner of NATO. In 2004, 10 years later, seven Eastern European countries, including two of them that border um, Russia, Latvia and, and Estonia, uh, joined NATO. And Sergei Lavrov at the time didn't oppose it. He, in fact, was in Brussels. They celebrated the entry of these countries into NATO. And these are countries that border Russia. This is now, mark my words, 2004. Everything changed in 2007. It's in 2007, at the time of the world financial crisis, elites in Russia started to worry that integration into the West was not necessarily the best way forward. They began to look to China. They looked at other avenues. Two years later, the BRICS was started. Russia became very eager in you know, trying to integrate with Brazil, India, South Africa, and so on. This is after the world financial crisis. The first time Mr. Putin comes on the record 
criticizing NATO's eastward expansion is in 2007, at the time of the financial crisis. Before then, they are not complaining about NATO moving eastward. As I said, they wanted to be part of NATO. Um, they joined NATO in 1994 as a partner of peace. You know, they have a term of art in NATO. That's what uh, Russia was a member of. After 2007, um, at the time still, the United States didn't see Russia as an adversary. You know, they were still believing that Mr. Putin would somehow be able to integrate with Europe. And, and by the way, the, it didn't hurt that all these billionaires were parking their money in Western banks. They were not called oligarchs as such, you know, which is kind of a supposedly disparaging term. Uh, Jeff Bezos and others, we don't call them oligarchs. We call them well, entrepreneurs. Actually, actually, Bernie Sanders <laughs> called them oligarchs, so... Okay, fair, fair, good, good on Bernie. Uh, so, so there it is. But you see, actually, in my opinion, uh, Paul, what happens is that you you begin to see after 2011, 12, 13, you begin to see these moves taking place in Eurasia. Russia beginning to integrate a little bit with China initially through the BRICS bloc, but then also bilaterally, they start to open discussions about solving their border conflict, which was only solved a few years ago. But then in 2013, when uh, Xi Jinping announces the One Belt, One Road initiative, which becomes the Belt and Road initiative, this begins to pose problems. 17 Eastern European and Central European countries join the Belt and Road project. You know, Poland is a member from 2015. That, that's really interesting. Italy joins in 2019. In my view, the struggle around Ukraine intensifies because Ukraine becomes a frontline state in a battle between two perspectives. One is the um, natural progression of European integration into Eurasia. Uh, this integration is taking place, number one, because Russia becomes a principal supplier of energy to Europe. Why is it a principal supplier of energy? Because the West cuts Europe's cord to, to Iran first with the uh, pressure on Iran, the sanctions on Iran. And secondly, after 2011, the West cuts the pipeline from, from Libya. Two principal sources of energy to Europe are offline. Russia takes up the slack and Russian oil and natural gas gets pumped into Europe in, in a way to substitute for these two. So Europe becomes integrated with Russian energy exports and it gets very much integrated into China's new Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, the very fact that Poland, which is a right-wing uh, government, you know, very closely rises, joins the Belt and Road in 2015, now goes unremarked. You know, people don't discuss this. So one approach was this natural integration of Europe into the Belt and Road. And the United States contested this by firstly saying there are security concerns in Chinese companies like Huawei, ZTE, and so on. Europe has to break ties, must ban them. United States can't compete with China on an equal commercial footing, so it's relying on its force uh, to put Chinese companies outside European markets and European integration. And in many ways, I think the conflict around Ukraine is a front line in this conflict about what, who gets to integrate Europe. The U.S. wants Europe to reintegrate fundamentally across the North Atlantic. So the United States would prefer to send liquefied natural gas from the U.S. to Europe. 
much more expensive than piped gas through Nord Stream 2, much more expensive. And also the platforms are simply not there to receive U.S. liquefied natural gas. So in that sense, I think it's not just a question of NATO, Paul, because if it were just NATO, well, from 1991 to 2007, the Russians didn't have a problem with NATO. This is not an issue about NATO. This is an issue about how the world must be shaped and the kind of logical dynamic of Europe's future. You know, now with the breaking of attempted breaking of the ties with Eurasia between Russia, China and Europe, Europe is going to plunge into a recession. Already, Olaf Schulz, the chancellor of Germany, no friend of Russia, very close to the Americans, he told Biden directly in Brussels, look, if you ask me to ban Russian gas, we will go into a recession now in Germany. And that's going to be catastrophic. Europe has already seen food prices go up, fertilizer prices go up. Fertilizer prices means next generation of food prices will go up. And it's seen energy costs go up. Europe is paying the price in a way for a contest between two forms of globalization. One, which is the old US driven one, the North Atlantic integration. And the other is a form of integration that's been taking place through the Belt and Road and through the export of Russian energy. Well, that's the contest in Ukraine. It's true. The Ukrainian people are being used as a pawn in a struggle that is beyond them. Uh, this is not just about Donbass and Lugansk. This is not just about Euromaidan 2014. Uh, they are a pawn in a much bigger struggle, and that's truly unfortunate. So if the big game here is the rivalry between U.S. and China, which, which is in geopolitics the big game, then why the hell is U.S. strategy pushing Russia more into China, into the sphere of China. I mean, the way things are going now, Russia becomes like a satellite state of China. Well, Paul, you need to ask Barack Obama to come to your program. <laughs> um, and this is a question you should ask Barack Obama because, you know, inside U.S. foreign policy circles, now for about maybe two generations, if not more, um, there's been a long debate about how to... Um, take the pressure of the, the these this this enormous countries you know initially the ussr but even russia which was the bulk of the ussr and china these enormous countries both in many ways um, you know lucky to have the endowments that they have resources populations and so on um, initially there was a debate in the 19 late 1960s and by the way henry kissinger who will outlive everybody has been in the center of this debate since the 1960s kissinger in the u.s foreign policy circles made the argument that the way to establish u.s u.s primacy was to befriend the chinese to take advantage of the sino-soviet split of the 1950s befriend the chinese and use them to weaken the, the soviets and that's the reason why Nixon goes to China in 1972. And that's the reason why, um, you know, Kissinger uh, pushes this strategy across all the domains of, of U.S. Um, power, economic, military, and so on, to bef keep befriending the Chinese diplomatically um, and to weaken the Russians. This worked right the way through till the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union. Well, in the new period, when it looked like the, uh, Russia was totally subordinate to the United States. You know, Boris Yeltsin 
didn't know how to say no to to Mr. Clinton. Um, he was totally subordinate to the United States. Um, Mr. Putin until 2007-8, very much subordinate to the Europeans and United States. There was an, a new appetite that grew in Washington. A section emerged saying, no, no, we should befriend the Russians who are subordinate to us to weaken and get rid of the communist China. Already the Soviet Union has been destroyed. Now let's get rid. Let's find the Gorbachev in Beijing. Uh, sort of argument developed. And that argument had a kind of arrogance to it. You know, well, now we've got the Russians in our pocket. Let's squeeze the Chinese. And and just let me add one thing. And Kissinger, after the Russians uh, took Crimea, he argued, don't make such a big deal out of this. It's a weird historical anomaly. And, and don't make a confrontation with Russia over Crimea, because at that point he's arguing for, OK, let's try to keep Russia more in the in the West camp and not push them into China. Except, of course, he writes a giant book called China in which he continues to make his argument that the United States can befriend China because China is so integral to the globalization strategy. Now, what Kissinger doesn't talk about there is actually Russia is also integral. As I said, Russian scientists come to the West. Uh, as I said, that um, Russian big Russian companies suppressed the prices of their raw materials and they parked all their profits in the West. So they also contributed to globalization in an enormous way. Kissinger doesn't indicate that in his big book, China. But this debate about whether China or Russia continues in foreign policy circles. Well, interestingly, it's during the um, presidency of Barack Obama that the United States accelerates against both. And how did they do this? Well, firstly, the U.S., perhaps wittingly or unwittingly, put pressure on Russia to basically excise it from being able to control its only two warm water ports. Um, this is a key development uh, against the Russians. You see, they have two, since the fall of the Soviet Union, there have been only two warm water ports that the Russians could control. One was in Sevastopol, which is in Crimea, uh, on the Black Sea, and the other is in Tartus, in Latakia, Syria. Um, if they lost both of access to both of these, Russia would not have a year-round navy. So in 2014, Russia seizes Crimea and then has a referendum and the people vote to join Russia. Okay, but we can come back to that because Crimea was landlocked. as far, It was not connected by land to Russia. Some of this war is about that as well. It's not been remarked much, but that that's, should be discussed. Second thing is, in September 2015, Russia militarily intervenes in Syria, um, not only to protect the government of Bashar al-Assad, but actually to protect its port in Tartus, in Latakia. Um, so at the time, Russia felt that it's um, actually faced an existential threat militarily. All of this is happening at the same time as the United States begins the process um, of, of pivoting to Asia. You might remember that Hillary Clinton goes to India in 2011, makes a bunch of belligerent anti-Chinese speeches. So you're threatening the Russian um, military capacity. Then you are making these noises about China, telling the Chinese you've got to revalue your currency and so on. Well, the, during the Obama period, Putin and Xi Jinping, especially after 2013, start to get closer together. Now, 
they're getting closer together the first thing that happens is they settle the border claim which goes back now 70 years i mean it's incredible um right through this period they still had a border dispute xi jinping and putin settled that they start to deepen their military economic um and of course uh, to some extent their diplomatic and political ties now it's true they don't sign a military alliance you know which requires if one is in war the other has to get involved both of them are careful not to get involved in this and i think that was prudent uh, that's very important that that didn't happen that would have been a that, that leads us into a nightmare scenario um but set that aside the point is the united states government wittingly or unwittingly brought the russians and the chinese closer together and they began to understand a simple axiom that look for the last generation or so the west has been trying to turn us against each other to use one to smash the other and then to smash the remaining one and now that line is a meme in china uh, people are saying don't abandon the russians you abandon the russians they'll first get rid of them then they'll get rid of us actually you want to tell people circulating the meme this has already happened remember you know the soviet union was destroyed now they want they have for the last several period been been looking for the gorbachev uh, who speaks chinese uh, to get rid of the um, the people's republic of china so that's been on the table for a long time but i think this is it whether waiting or unwitting and that's why i say you should ask mr barack obama what his uh, thoughts were on this issue but it's under obama that the process begins of putting pressure on all sides of eurasia uh, you know putting the heat up and therefore bringing the two together by the time trump in 2018 says that the united states is going to withdraw from the intermediate nuclear forces treaty the inf um, a very important treaty in the nuclear architecture of security 2002 the us already left the anti ballistic missile treaty with the departure from the inf uh, both russia and china began to articulate to the americans that they fear a us nuclear strike on their countries and for that they seek security guarantees you know now when putin has been saying we seek security guarantees it's not from ukraine he, he doesn't need a security guarantee from ukraine he wants a security guarantee from the west that short range nuclear missiles will not be placed in latvia estonia or ukraine or anywhere uh, which can uh, reach moscow within 5 or 6 minutes um let me go back to something you said earlier and then i'm going to pick up on what you were just saying um uh, the, the talking about ukraine as a frontline state in the rivalry with china if i'm understanding it correctly if the russian invasion had been successful and actually installed a pro russian government over all of ukraine or if the actual objective or now the actual objective is a division of ukraine and an essentially uh, independent donbas that's essentially within the russian sphere then that part of ukraine now becomes part of the belt and road initiative which strengthens china's hand in the region is is that what you mean by frontline state in this rivalry you see firstly paul i think the chinese did not want any military conflict because um you know i think the chinese look at world history in thousand year increments um and they would have gone much slower like build up 
you know, your connections, Belt and Road in Europe, go slowly, let trade lead. Don't which, have to which have... They, which Russia could have, was and could have done more with Donbass, exactly, because Donbass was more and more integrating in, with, into the Russian economy. Correct. And, and in that sense, um, I don't think anybody wanted a war. And in that sense as well, um, you know, Ukraine need not have been a frontline state for warfare. It could have been a frontline state for trade and so on. I mean, as I said, Poland joined the Belt and Road in 2015. You know, uh, you don't need to have a pro-Russian government or a pro-Chinese government. You need to have a rational government in power. Angela Merkel, for instance, was a rational chancellor. Uh, she increased um, pressure to to finish Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that links Germany to Russia, not because she was pro-Russia or pro-Mr. Putin or anything, but because Germany requires cheap energy to sustain itself, particularly as they decommission nuclear reactors, part of their, you know, national commitment to get rid of nuclear, already getting rid of coal, well, then it's natural gas. And then you're going to get it cheaper from Russia than liquefied from the United States. It's also very dangerous to liquefy natural gas and send it in tankers and so on. It's basically a big, big bomb that you're bringing across the Atlantic Ocean. But at any rate, um, you know, a rational government is sufficient. You don't need a subordinate government. So I don't mean it's a frontline state for that reason. I don't think China or Russia, frankly, made this into a frontline state. And I don't want to be misunderstood here as an apologist for anybody. I'm just talking factually. I don't think they wanted to accelerate a, a military conflict in, in Ukraine. But I do feel, and I feel strongly about this, that in a way, I think the United States accelerated this conflict and didn't care. You know, if you watched Antony Blinken uh, from his first meeting with Wang Yi, the foreign minister of, of China and Alaska, right till his recent comments um, made just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, he seemed quite sanguine about this. You know, the Russians are building up their military. They may or may not invade Ukraine, but, you know, we'll take care of them in the long run. They, they didn't seem to care, really. I mean, I was perplexed by the attitude. There was not much outrage about this. Even now, you know, um, they recognize that, look, U.S. forces can't enter Ukraine. Um, and at the most dangerous development could be one of two, which is the Russians currently are bombing within 100 kilometers of the Polish border. Um, if they accidentally strike across the border, that's a nightmare because that Poland is a NATO state. The other thing is, we tend to forget that Poland has a claim to Galicia, you know, the western part of Ukraine, to the city of Lviv and so on. What if the Poles decide to cross the border and say we're making like a, a civilian, you know, refugee corridor and, and whatever, but then they sit there and don't leave in the... And then that becomes part of NATO, effectively, you know. I mean, all these things are nightmare scenarios, Paul. So in some sense, I feel that the West... And, and that's why people say, but, but it was the Russians that crossed the border. No doubt about that. The Russians did something illegal. They violated the UN Charter by sending their troops across the border. But I think actually in this case, there was fire starter poured all over Ukraine. And I'm not sure that the, um, the Russians poured the fire starter. It was the West that poured the fuel all over this, this country. And the Russians threw the first match on it and lit the fire. We have to also consider why they threw the fuel on, on the country. You know, 
Okay, well, we're going to do that. Well, wait a sec about the NATO or the Russians, because I, 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 I think that I, the only reason to spend a year or more, I mean, right from 2014 particularly, but especially in the last year, such a massive armament uh, of, uh, of Ukraine by the U.S. And I'm not entirely sure it's fair to say the West, because I don't know that France and Germany were so on board until the invasion. And that, but, but is this a scenario, which many people have suggested, that in fact they armed Ukraine, they being the U.S., to create a provocation. And, the, and, the, and one of the reasons they kept saying, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade. It almost seems like Russia hadn't decided yet, but got goaded into it, which is, seems kind of ridiculous because Putin seemed to have been a pretty good chess player up until then. But don't start talking about Russia and Putin yet. But do you think there's something to this, that part of the reason for such arming of Ukraine in the lead up was to try to provoke this reaction out of Russia? I mean, I think that that's exactly what was happening. Um, I think when you go back and listen to the tape of Victoria Newland's phone call from Euromaidan in 2014, where she says, this is her speaking, not me, she says, fuck the EU, referring to the European Union. Um, you know, the, the United States was quite clear that they wanted to have a U.S. government in Kiev um, in, in charge there. Well, why? Why in 2014 were they that keen on a pro-U.S. government in Kiev? I mean, that's a pretty good question. You know, if you want to place um, intermediate nuclear missiles, you could have placed it in the in the Baltic states. But these are small states. You know, they can't defend themselves. Um, Ukraine is different. And I don't think the Poles were willing to become the doormat for this. Um, I think the United States was looking for a way to egg the Russians by 2014-15 into some kind of adventure. Um, now, why this is the case, that's a long story. But I would also, again, repeat that we need to ask the United States government to account for itself here. And, and isn't this interesting that they just don't have to give an explanation for anything they do, you know? And I, I have not heard or seen um, that is to say, read or listened to a speech by any high official of the United States government explaining U.S. policy around Ukraine. Um, the most that was said about Ukraine in the last nine years was Trump's accusation about Mr. Biden's son and the money made in Ukraine. That's the most conversation we heard uh, in the media. But no high official has talked about what U.S. objectives were in Ukraine um, there's a lot of U.S. money pumped into that country, not only for arms, but for other things as well. But why should you and I speculate about these things, Paul? That's irresponsible. I think high officials of the United States government need to explain what has U.S. policy been since 2014 or perhaps a little earlier in Ukraine. And why were all these weapons sold and why was their biological um, you know, plants set up in, in Ukraine and so on? Again, these are not suppositions that we are making or, you know, fantasies about some labs that are there. This is out of the mouths of the officials. They have said these things, but they haven't given us an explanation of why. You know, they have said we are arming. They have said we, through the National Endowment for Democracy, we funded Radio Free Crimea and so on. You did all these things. 
then once the Russians invaded, all that information was stripped off the new National Endowment for Democracy website. And meanwhile, none of your high officials have been brought before Congress to explain anything. When the U.S. Congress, which has oversight on these matters, calls people in, it's basically cheerleading. You know, they, they call them in and then they say, you know, go get the Russians. But that's, you know, there is no accountability. And the world simply is not heard from the U.S. government. Let me, let me just sum up a point, and then we're going to start the next segment. We're going to try to deconstruct the Russian motivations and all this. Um, and and I, I do want to make sure to, again, make the point that I made in the, in the introduction at the very beginning. Um, the Russian invasion is illegal. Uh, they are committing war crimes. Um, and it, it, I think progressive public opinion should be firmly against it. Um, and it's not a contradiction or anything to also point out uh, the U.S. essentially uh, Biden breaking his promise to stop the support for the Saudi attacks in Yemen, invasion of Yemen. He, he's completely backed off that. Uh, it's not, uh, the, not, it's still and will always be the time to also talk about the complete abandonment of the Afghan people who are in the midst of a terrible star, uh, famine, starvation, uh, and all of that's gone away. And, and most importantly, it will always be the moment to assess every geopolitical situation from the question, how does this affect the climate change question? And I, if anything, I think this is, if Putin's created a war crime here, and I think he has, and if the Americans induced him into it to some extent or a large extent, which, which I think they did, the biggest crime is going to, is the crime against humanity, one, increasing the threat of nuclear war, because I don't think there'll be a deliberate nuclear war out of all this, but an accidental nuclear war in the context of such tension is, is far, far higher. And I saw a report, I think it was the Washington Post, that senior military, U.S. military officials, I think at the Joint Chiefs level, were trying to talk to their vis-a-vis in Russia just to make sure there's some channels of communication so there isn't some mistake that leads to the end of the world, but apparently the Russians are refusing to answer their calls. Uh, I don't know the truth of that, and this is part of the problem here. Is it's very difficult to know the truth of any of the reporting that's coming out. Um, but one thing is clear, uh, international law matters. Uh, nuclear war is, is, is very possible out of this. And the climate crisis, which is a for certain, uh, is not even being talked about anymore. So, but in part two, we're going to try to deconstruct if the Russians were induced into this, then why? Because it was kind of obvious. And, and if, if Russia's objective was to increase their security, well, how's that working out for you? Uh, NATO is now more united probably in the history of NATO. Germany and France that were actually raising uh, some differences and Germany willing to go ahead with Nordstrom 2 pipeline when uh, the United States was very much against it, but Germany was going to do it anyway. That's all gone. Uh, if, if the objective was security, boy, that isn't what Putin and Russia achieved. Okay, so uh, thank you, Vijay. Uh, we're going to be back with part two. And thanks for joining us on the analysis.news.